Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson. And joining me again, he, he can't get enough of the subduction stuff. It's Rich Adam, man. Welcome back. <laughs> I, I am so happy to be back. Yeah, I, 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 get, I don't know, Rob. I guess I just want to stay away. <laughs> You're going to have to uh, put up with me a little longer. That's fine. Uh, the people seem to love it anyway. I, I get requests often for uh, when, when is Rich going to be back. So, Really? The people yeah. like me? They do. Nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, tell them. Uh, tell them to re- reach out on Twitter. <laughs> reach out to Rich on Twitter. He loves it. Uh, he loves it when you shower him with praise uh, for, for yeah. everything he's done. Uh, Give me that you know. our strange skies love. Yeah. So today we're we're talking about two specific kind of abductee contactees. Uh, that uh, we feel kind of deserve their own episode, um, especially with Herbert Shermer, because it, his his case is so interesting and it's kind of got it's it's a little I don't know I, I wouldn't say heartwarming, but it has a little heart to it, uh, just in the like what he endured. Uh, and kind of the nature of his contact experience. But, um, you know, with, with Albert Coe, like you brought this one to the table. Uh, yeah. What exactly is this, this story, you know, because like, uh, let's just paint a picture here. Like this is his book comes out in what? 1969. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 Okay. So this is like a time when like contactees really aren't, as prevalent as they were like from the fifties until like the early sixties, I would say. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. And it's it, like, I didn't know. Well, okay. So, so my story, cause I suggested this, but uh, I, I didn't really know what I was talking about, which is not new for you, Rob, you sort of, Well, what happened was uh, a year or so back, uh, you know, I'm always, as you are, kind of trolling the internet for um, for old UFO books because I collect them, you collect them. We know a few other people uh, who who like to, you know, own the, uh, you know, like the, the, I mean, I started when I bought the uh, George Adamski and was it Desmond Leslie, the book? Was, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And it's got the UF, and I'm like, oh, that's the coolest looking book. And this was like 25 years ago or something. And then I decided, oh, I should collect these. So anyway, a couple of years ago, I there there was this book available uh, through, um, I think it was uh, ABE Books, which is one of those you know internet antiquated bookseller sites. And this one was this extremely rare, super expensive, you know almost self-published book by Albert Coe. It came out in 1969, but it was about experiences he had back in the 20s, basically. 
And it was a first edition, great condition, book jacket, book jacket in great condition, and signed by Albert Coe. So the, the the description of the book is like, look, I mean, this book is rare to begin with, much less in this condition. Signed, it may be entirely unique. There may not be another copy in existence, therefore the the big price tag. So my birthday was coming up, you know, and I had had a pretty good year, you know, Titan's doing okay, going into year four. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the residuals pouring in. So yeah. <laughs> uh, Mr. Godrocks over here goes to Susan and says, Susan, my birthday's coming up. <laughs> you buy. <laughs> She's like, oh my God, what the hell is this? I'm like, none of your business, just buy it for me. <laughs> so it's this book called The Shocking Truth by Albert Coe. And, and, the, and the painting on the cover is of a young man sitting yeah. by the side of a, of a, oh, we know he's sitting actually in front of a, a fire, uh, a little yeah. campfire. And in the sky is a UFO. It's right there. It's hanging out. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, but, but it's a very relaxed setting. Anyway, so my understanding when I got this book was that it was, it was about an abduction and that the unique part about it was that the abduction took place in the 20s and, and therefore, you know, placed it decades before the more popular, well-known abduction cases that we talked about last time. So I got really excited about it. I bought, you know, so the book arrived for my birthday. I got it. It's in a plastic bag, unopened. Did not touch the book. Had no intention of ever reading the book. I just wanted to have it, look at it, mm -hmm. see the signature and and display it on my, on my uh, little credenza over there. <laughs> then you come along. Yep. Hey, we're doing early abductions. I'm like, yeah, what about Albert Coe? You're like, fine. I found a PDF. Here it is. So, <laughs> so, you send me a fucking, so now I've printed it. I'm like, oh, so now I print out 120 pages of this book. I actually read the book. Oh boy, let me tell you the shocking truth. Not that shocking, probably not that true. So <laughs> now who's holding the bag? <laughs> Richard, Richard Haddam is holding it now. <laughs> Don't tell Susan. Don't tell Susan. <laughs> uh, yeah, we were, we were pretty fortunate to actually find a PDF copy because uh, I, I, I think it was the Saucer Life that had actually done an episode on it. And I think that's where I found the PDF. But like... I tell you, PDFs are lifesavers when it comes to finding like rare books. And like if you can find, you know, PDFs online and stuff, it's it's a very handy thing, as is the resource page on OurStrangeSkies.com. I will never stop Ooh. plugging that. Like it is Good. seriously one of the best digital resources pages. I'm still freaking amassing shit. So uh, it's it's going to end up on there. But yeah, like. You got the PDF and like, you know, like a nerd, you printed it out. So uh, that's pretty great. Well, you know, I knew I'd be taking notes because, you know, Professor yeah. Christofferson wants to see my work, not just, I do. you know, read the answer. He wants to see how I arrived at the answer, which is what all good teachers do. So I, I knew I had to <laughs> fucking 
Yeah. Well, I wasn't going to read a hundred pages online. Look, I'm old fashioned. Okay. Call me old fashioned. In fact, make me an old fashioned. I'm getting thirsty. Anyway, <laughs> I, I, so I printed it out. I read it. And let me just tell you, let's start. I know you, we're going to talk about Shermer. Can we start with Co? Because now that yes. I'm this far into my, you know, yep. tirade, yep. look, this, I, this book is, is sincerely written and written at a fairly high level. The the prose is kind of lugubrious. It's in that sort of highfalutin tone of mm-hmm. early in the century. We're not talking Hemingway or Hammett's stripped down prose. We're talking about, you know, why use five words when 55 will do. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> now, what we have here, and, and you and I talked about this a little bit, this is ultimately a contactee manifesto. Mm-hmm. Here's what's interesting about it. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things about it, but but to start with the abduction angle, because as I was flipping through it, there's illustrations. He he got a guy to paint a few panels of 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 what he's trying to express, and and it and it shows a guy basically dressed sort of in a suit, pointing at uh, a bunch of screens. And and what I understood from the caption was that these screens were on the craft and and that he's sort of pointing at them and there's various, you know, uh, things showing up on the screen. So I'm like, oh, shit, he really was abducted. But he actually wasn't. He specifically wasn't. He has contact with this guy and we'll talk about the guy in a second. But this guy says, okay. One of the rules is I can't let you on my craft. You cannot come on the UFO. You're not allowed. Interesting. But I am now going to describe in, let me tell you, excruciating detail (laughs) what the inside of the craft looks like. And I'm going to take you on a pretend tour of it. So come with me in your imagination as we walk up the steps and emerge into a room, which is approximately 150 feet side to side, but circular in shape with lights emanating from the wall. And then he begins a pages and pages and pages description as we take a tour of the inside of the ship. That's all just being verbally described to him by the space person. But he never, ever, ever goes on the ship. He sees it. He sees it parked. He sees it take off. He sees it flying. But he's never allowed on because that's one of the rules. So this guy on no level could can be considered an abductee. He is full contactee and, and de- definitely of the benevolent space brother variety. So, so that's what we're dealing with uh, with Albert Coe. This is an example of telling and not showing, like. (laughs) (laughs) It's the exact opposite of what I'm trying to do in my work, which is show, not tell. Um, Yeah. Um, Did you, Rob, did you read any of this book at all? I I read a little bit of it. I didn't have time to read the whole thing, but uh, it is highfalutin. I will say that it's, um, it's, it's kind of pretty. A little pretty, uh, but uh, very, <laughs> yeah. very wordy, very wordy. 
very wordy and not, you know, not the ramblings of a madman. I mean, it's not incomprehensible right. gibberish. He doesn't sound insane, but but when and look, I'm no physicist. I'm no astrophysicist. <laughs> the, he goes deep into the weeds about traveling through galaxies and exactly how this is done and where these people come from and how they get from one place to the next. And it gets pretty dense. I'd be fascinated if somebody with a background in any of these fields read this book and could make heads or tail out of it. It sounds like it could make sense, but I really have no no ability on my own to evaluate it on that level. I can evaluate the pros. I'll tell you what it sounds like. You know those some of those books that are uh, channeled material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, where where it, it gets into this sort of very sort of lordy, flowery speak, you know, and it it, it, it sounds like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't know anything. I could not dig up anything about Albert Coe, who he was. Um, I was not able to find anything about him. Uh, I'm sure it's out there, and, and I, you know, I didn't spend days looking. But I don't know what his background is. I don't know what he did for a living. But his claim is that he made contact when he was a very young man, like like basically a teenager with this guy, this space guy who sort of looks just like us, real good looking, very Aryan, blue eyes, blonde hair, Mm -hmm. sort of who sort of emerges as like an older brother type or maybe the cool friend of my older brother, you know, kind of a, (laughs) you know, kind of like, oh, this guy's kind of he's kind of what I want to be when when I'm 21, but I'm only 16 now. You know, he seems to know, he knows how to do things and he's smart and he's had a more exciting life than me, but he's talking to me. Okay, here's how they meet. Albert Coe and and a friend of his, about his age, are out, it's summertime and they're canoeing in Canada, um, in, I think, Ontario. So this might be north of Toronto. Mm. And uh, one day, uh, and they're just making, it's 1920. They don't have, you know, any kind of GPS. They're just sort of finding their way based on maps and what they've heard. But they know kind of where they want to go and where they want to camp that night. It's sort of over in that direction. But it's going to be tough going. We can take the northern route or the southern route to sort of get across these woods. So what they said was, okay, Albert's like, you go this way, I'll go that way. We'll each go a couple of miles and then come back and sort of report back on on how difficult the going is. And we'll decide Mm -hmm. on what path to take. So Albert goes one way, his buddy goes the other. Albert's walking along, gets a few miles down the road and gets to a particularly sort of tough kind of, there's a big rocky outcropping, sort of a big rocky hill and a dense forest on the other side. And he's like, I don't know what to do. And then he hears a sound. Um, and it sounds like the sound of rocks kind of tumbling down on the other side of this sort of rock pile. So he 
starts moving up the rock pile, and then he starts hearing a voice going, oh, help me, please help me. And he's like, I am in the middle of nowhere. Like, we haven't seen another human being for days. And now I'm hearing someone who sounds like they're about 20 yards away calling out. So he's like, hello. And the guy's like, oh my God, come help me, help me, help me. So Albert goes over this rocky hill and starts descending down the other side. And he sees this guy, just looks like a guy, sort of stuck, like up to his chest in a crevice between two rocks. And the guy's like, oh my God, you got to help me, you got to help me. Albert goes down there and it takes a lot of work to get this guy dislodged. He actually has to like find a piece of rope and sort of tie it around the guy's chest under his arms and then put it up over a big long branch and then use the branch as a lever to sort of pry the guy up out of this crevice. He manages to do it and the guy is like, this is a miracle. I got stuck here. I've been here for days. I I literally expected to die. I haven't eaten. I haven't had any water. The fact that you came along in this remote area is absolutely impossible. The odds are incalculable, but you have saved my life. Now, meanwhile, Albert is noticing that this guy, while looking normal, has is sort of dressed in a one-piece gray jumpsuit. Does mm-hmm. that sound familiar? Yeah. But he looks just like us. He, there's nothing gray about him. You know, he's just a guy. But this outfit that he's wearing has this square panel on the chest. And the panel looks like it's got a bunch of wires. He helps the guy. The the, But the guy seems... But Albert is like, I was feeling really weird this whole time. Like, it really... like. Even I was sort of struck at how weird it was to meet someone out here in the middle of nowhere. And then the guy said, I, the guy said he was just here to go fishing. Uh, he said, oh, could you get my pole? Well, I went and got his pole, but it was a fishing pole unlike any I'd ever seen. It was sort of all of a piece, and it looked a little shorter than a normal fishing pole, almost like a wand of some sort. And I, mm. I mean, all of my, <laughs> you know, all my flags are waving. It's just like, okay, red flag, you know, the, 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 the wiry panel, you know, the weird wand looking thing, the Oz factor of all of this was seeming really strange. Uh, a voice calling from the woods. I mean, that's straight out of every fairy story you've ever heard. Yeah. Well, well, this guy says, I got here because I landed my plane in a field just on the other side of those trees. And I came here to go fishing and I slipped on these rocks and got caught. And that was it. And Albert's like, this story sounds like bullshit. How could this be? You know, (laughs) where were you going to, where are you going to land a plane? Because this is all pretty dense. Like I can't, you, you would have to have like, like a lot of space, hundreds of yards, maybe a quarter mile to land any kind of a plane. Finally, he's in their conversation. He 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 says, "Can I see this plane?" The guy's like, "You don't want to see the plane. I can't show you the plane. I really want to see the plane." And the guy's like, "Okay, look, you saved my life. I owe you this much. You can come see the plane." 
So they walk through the forest and emerge into a small field, and there is, for all intents and purposes, a flying saucer. Mm. And Opera's like, I don't get it. What is this? He's like, well, that's my plane. It's a new experimental model. Um, <laughs> the two of them walk up to it. Albert's like, it was circular. It had a dome on top. It was on three sort of legs with flat little feet. Uh, and, uh, you know, then he, then he presses a button and a door opens and some stairs come down. It's a classic UFO. Yeah. The guy says, I would love to bring you inside and show you what the inside of this experimental plane looks like, but I can't. I don't have time. I've got to go get back to my people. But uh, one day our paths will cross again. And he goes and he gets inside and Albert walks back to the trees 50 yards away and watches as this thing starts to hover and then wobble, kind of like a falling leaf, and then, uh, and then zoom off into the sky. And he's so excited and he goes back and later on that day meets up with his friend and it's like, you know, and, and by the way, the guy, uh, our, our, our space brother had said, well, when I landed, I saw that the, um, that the, the there's, there's a, a passable route to the North and that's your best bet if that's where you're going. So when Albert meets up with his friend who scouted the Northern passageway, his friend goes, yeah, we can go, get through this way. So Albert's like, well, now that's weird. So because this guy, before he got back into his experimental spacecraft, said that from the air, he saw there was a passable way. And now that's been confirmed by my friend. So, so all of this is sort of connecting up. Mm -hmm. He's in a great mood for the next few days. They're having this wonderful canoe trip. He and his friend are having a great time. And he keeps thinking about that weird guy he met. And then one day, like the picture on the cover of the book, his friend goes to sleep one night. They've had their dinner. And now as the fire is sort of dying and he's looking up into the sky, wondering about his friend, here comes the UFO. And it sort of tilts back and forth a little bit in the sky like it's waving at him. And then it zooms off again. And he's like, I knew, I knew that my friend was visiting me and somehow knew I was thinking about him. Then it gets weirder because then he goes home, forgets about his friend until, until his friend calls on the phone. It uh, says, let's get together and meet. <laughs> That's, uh, you know, that I, it's, it's great. Like this, this alien's a stalker. Just, just a stalker now. Like, oh my god, so stalkery. Yeah. Oh, it, oh, uh, um, oh. I, actually, you know what? Here, I'm going to show you something in in my notes. I may have. Uh, I'm sorry. I um, I, I got the sequence wrong. First, he. Um, oh, here it is. First, he sends him a letter. Then he gets the phone call. Mm. Uh, I received a letter signed. This was the signature of his space friend. Here's how this guy spells his name. Now, I'm going to spell it and you write it down. Okay, Rob? Do, you, right. do you have a pencil or a pen? Uh, I, I will write it down in my notes here. Okay, write Go it down ahead. in your notes. Okay. His, his name is spelled um, X-R-E-T-S-I-M. Um, Does that mean anything to you? No. Try reading it backwards. 
Oh, no, not Mr. X. No. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> X is making an appearance. Wow. Now, I read that. I read that. The minute I see a weird alien name, I always read it backwards or try to find the anagram. So within one second, I look at this and I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Mr. X spelled backwards. This is where we're going. I got a hundred more pages of this bullshit. Um, on the very next page, he goes, well, of course, I knew immediately that this was not his real name for it was nothing but Mr. X spelled backwards. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. oh, okay. All right. He's admitting right up front that we're, we're playing word games. All right. So he's in on the joke. I, I appreciate that. Like he's, he's trying to, he's maintaining what we call kayfabe. Uh, for anybody that watches uh, professional wrestling, you know, and, and like trying to maintain the illusion, uh, this is what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's fun is that so he gets the phone call, and now he and this and his space brother, Mister X, meet up at a diner outside Terrytown. Really, Terrytown? Yeah. Now, how close are you to Terrytown? I'm a few, maybe like uh, three hours away, I would say. It's, it's oh, about okay. That, yeah. <laughs> Rob, how come every every time I ask you anything about where you are, you're three hours away? It's a, where it's the hell a are serious you? thing. Uh, you, I'm, I'm like more towards the north, but like uh, it's interesting that they're meeting in, uh, you know, uh, headless horseman kind of territory. I, I appreciate that. I know. I know. So... Here's here's what it says uh, in the book. We stopped at a diner outside Terrytown to have a bite of breakfast. While we were eating, he remarked, by the way, did you figure the name out? It was quite by accident, but I had, for the Christmas card was sitting on my bureau and it had tipped over with its face to the mirror. And as I combed my hair there in plain English was Mr. X. I picked up the card and an implication I had not given a thought to was plain to see. X... Uh, excretsim was Mr. X spelled backwards. He asked how I had explained the gift because a gift was sent to him by this guy. Mm. He asked how I had explained the gift for although it was an involuntary impulse of the heart, realized afterwards that it was also a bit thoughtless. I told him, oh, that was easy for it was credited to one of my girlfriends in New York and that we had a secret code which is often used in our correspondence. So there's something oddly uh, covert and borderline romantic between these two. Now it never goes that way. I was hoping it was this was going to turn into you know my my <laughs> my lover from outer space, but right. but it, it, that isn't where it went. But emotionally, that is kind of how this feels. He begins to meet with this guy. Okay, and they have several different meetings, sometimes months, sometimes years apart. And each time they meet, he's got all these questions. And this guy goes on at length with these long, complicated, extremely mathematically and scientifically detailed answers for how his spaceship flies, what's inside the spaceship, why it's there. And then ultimately, what is this guy doing here? Okay. So now I will kind of finish up the tale of Albert Coe. The story Mm. is this. These guys have always existed. They live longer lifespans than we do, and they come from a planet way, way, way out in outer space. 
Okay. They, they, a, a group of a hundred of them, I think, came here in 1904. And they, they came here for the purpose of making sure we don't destroy ourselves, or at least helping us not destroy ourselves. Because they look like us, and because they are somewhat immortal, they've been able to distribute themselves around our world and embed themselves in various uh, um, positions of scientific, uh, you know, uh, importance. They're able to okay. sort of get into places. And while they can't exactly kibosh anything we're doing, like they can't, they can't make sure we don't learn how to split the atom. They can try to influence our understanding of the world so that we'll be more reluctant to destroy ourselves. Mm. Kind of like mm. the Star Trek thing. It's sort of like, well, we can be here and we can sort of try to kind of nudge you in one direction or another, but we can't just, you know, knock over the beaker so you never figure out what's inside of it. <clears throat> right. Um, now... They've got they've got five rules. Complete freedom of action by these 100 technicians was limited by a set of five inviolate rulings and subtitles for the duration of their stay on Earth. Any infraction to these rules would subject the violator to immediate recall, and if unforeseen events necessitated an amendment to procedure, only a majority vote by the council could rescind or change its stipulations. Okay, picture 100 pages of writing that's basically like mm -hmm. that. Okay, yep. so here they are. The following is a general transcript of its basic embodiment. One, secrecy of identity was paramount. Intervention or instigation of any change in our way of life, meaning human way of life, was strictly forbidden. To willfully participate in armed conflict, to divulge any secret of physics or chemistry that may even remotely aid in an expansion of military potential, or to direct or assist in the planning of a military strategy was also forbidden. Three, no man of Earth was permitted entrance to a spacecraft. Okay, so we heard about that. Mm -hmm. Four, this one's amazing. Four is... Due to possibility of a maximum duration of this mission, marriage with Earth women was permitted. <laughs> I mean, come on. We when can't in Rome, influence right? anything. We can't influence anything. But no, but you can't tell us. We're here for. Yeah, yeah. We, 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 we can't keep our paws off the, the women folk. Come on. We're out, we're out here for a long time, guys. Uh, okay, but a specific element in the chemistry of the body, the alien's body, was electronically treated to prevent the occurrence of offspring. Permanent roots would not be tolerated. Mm. So they could get busy, but they couldn't, you know. Yeah. Th th at a certain point, you got to say goodbye and move off. <laughs> okay, and then f five, the fifth rule to always conduct themselves as gentlemen and the mannerisms, thought, kindness, and tolerance of their own philosophies be extended in all dealings with our people and to assist in any 
and to assist in any invention or philosophy of our own creation that may bring a benefit of happiness to the races of Earth. Uh, okay. okay. So that's I'm, their I'm, rules. I, so there's like this like dichotomy here of like, well, we can't influence your, we can't give you like weapons for, but if it's going to help you, we're cool. Like, like this is, right. this is so, so weird. We can't allow you on our, our UFOs, but we can marry any woman we want. <laughs> right. And when they say marry, I think we all yeah. know what they're really saying. Right. You know, right. when they, when, when they want to get some of that sweet earth trim, they're allowed to. Because <laughs> by the way, it's only men. The, this delegation, all men, no women. Jesus. So it's not like, and then, and of course, the women of our delegation are allowed also to to claim a husband. No, 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 no reference to that. Of course not. Of course not. Yeah, that sounds about right. That that's definitely it's it's uh it's a complete sausage fest basically on this uh, oh, with yeah. these folks. Yeah. But they've been electronically treated so as not to uh uh have offspring. So they got the space vasectomy. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And um okay, so 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 this is all taking place, this information that he's being given is mostly in the 1920s. He is, he is told by his space brother, you know, you can't talk about this. This is our secret. Like, you can know this, but nobody else. And the only reason I'm telling you is because of the fortuitous way in which we met. I mean, if it wasn't for you, I would have died. So I'm going to tell you this stuff, but you can't tell anyone else. It was only immediately prior to the writing and publication of this book that he was given dispensation from his space brother, Mr. X, to finally inform the earth of what has been going on and what is going on and what could happen in the future. So that's, that's why he ultimately then wrote this book and, um, and put it out into the world. Interesting. Uh, I I do appreciate the uh, the sketches that are in it because there are sketches of these aliens uh, and their UFOs over primitive man, like showing up and uh, oh you yeah, know, hovering over. Yeah, yeah. They it's, they uh, they have been a part of our development all the way along, and um, at at an earlier point, one of these. Uh, prehistoric man or a, some version of early primitive man uh, got a hold of something that was a part of their technology and um, and uh, and and like uh, triggered an event okay okay or almost triggered an event but in 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 in, in, in any case uh, the the self-destructive nature of man, based on his voracious curiosity and need for power was then demonstrated to these aliens who then learned that that's what we're all about and that that's the instinct through which they must intervene. And, and within this text, it's recognized that, well, it's, 
it's the yin and the yang. It's the dark side, but then you also have this thing called love, you know? And so Mm -hmm. we are here to kind of negotiate between these two impulses, which human impulse will win out. If it's the destructive, well, then all is lost. If it's the other love, anything's possible. And that's, that's what they're trying to negotiate. Interesting. Okay, so they really bungled this thing because uh, there were two world wars after they showed up. Just saying. It- <laughs> right. I mean, that's what I thought. I'm like, well, let's, you know, let's just take a little flip through the history books. But then, but then there's always, there's always the sort of, yes, but you haven't destroyed yourselves. Not yet. You know, you, you, you are being given the opportunity to decide. We're not deciding for you. We're going to, we're going to let you, we will stand by as you develop a weapon that can destroy all life on earth hundreds of times over. But will you press the button? And as of this date, what is today, Rob? Wednesday, October 26th, the year 2022. We Mm. have not done it. We have not destroyed ourselves yet. Thank you to these aliens for allowing us to record a podcast decades later about this entire thing, because uh, clearly they have succeeded. Granted, those two world wars and that, you know, the nuclear bomb, not really high, great points for them. But you know what? We're still here for now. Wow. We'll see. We'll see how long that lasts. But you know what? Good on them, I guess. Like, it's, so um, it's, it, it's the weird circular philosophy. It's like, yeah. it's like, okay, a war was fought. Um, Horrible atrocities were committed throughout the war and all the way up to and including the 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 use of the bombs at at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Okay, the Earth, uh, I'm sorry, human beings as a race survive. The Earth as a planet survives. But what did we learn from that terrible conflagration? You know, mm-hmm. did we learn anything? I don't know. Maybe we did. Maybe we didn't. You know. Here we are. You know, other other wars take place. Have we learned? Will we learn? We don't right. know. And and I think what we've learned is that Albert Coe is full of shit. But you know what? <laughs> I appreciate <Well. laughs> I appreciate his story regardless. Because I, I you know? again, it's I don't know. it's it's pretty, it's pretty, it's flowery, it's um it's a typical contact story. You can't prove he's wrong. No, I can't. <laughs> but, uh, you know. Isn't the burden really on you, Rob, to prove oh, every aspect of Albert Coe's story is uh, made up? Yeah, it, it's this is the it's a cold case that uh, I am not competent to investigate. I am not a cold case detective. But uh, either way, like it is. It's 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 your typical uh, kind of. I, I think what separates him is that like, were there any contactees saying that they had contacts back in the 1920s, whereas like most of them had contacts, you know, in the 1950s. But um, uh, he is he has gotten up. He's going over to. Uh, I know. 
grab Dude, uh, a book, this is a new this is a new paperback uh, yes. a is for adamski yep. you've got this one yeah uh this is the greg bishop adam go rightly book and and you know it never even occurred to me to uh to, to look up our friend albert uh albert co let's see if he's we're doing there. this live folks he is doing this right now he is going Maybe. to the seas gray barker A-B-A-B-A-B-F. No, there is no reference to Albert Coe. There are no no people with the last... Let's see if there's any reference in the the index to Albert Coe. Does your shirt have an Adamski saucer on it? Uh, Oh, yeah, it does. Uh, Okay. (laughs) No, in... Oh, Detroit Flying Saucer Club? Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, isn't this uh, uh, Tenny? Yep, I may have gotten it through uh, through uh, John Tenny. Uh, yeah, Excellent. I, 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 yeah. there it is. It's, it's it's glorious, fantastic. So, yeah, so there's no so Co is not well known, no, but. But his story is part of it. Look, I've got I've got a Damsky's books. I, I I you know if if some George Van Tassel comes on the market, I'll buy it. I've got Orfeo Angelucci. So do you. The, mm-hmm. the story the story of the contactees is part of the story of UFOs that you and I both yeah. study and 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 you know. It, it it has to be taken into account where 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 were all the positive stories before the 1950s of contactees well this appears to be one but it wasn't reported until 1969 so right. it, it's hard to separate you can't you you can't say this is a clean isolated case that that is totally divorced from the contactee literature of the 50s um you know then we, you know, the, the then we move into the stories of the abductees, you know, who have negative experiences. Um, th- th- you know, it's all part of the, you know the rich UFO pageant. But even though this goes back to the twenties, it, it, it's a tough one to figure out. I I, ca- I cannot say it's legit on any level. What it looks like is a guy who wrote a book in 1968 that was influenced by the contactee movement. And he uh, predated his a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, uh, I appreciate the illustrations. I really do. Cause they are, they are, they are really oh. good. And um, they are credited to uh, Thomas Lulovich. He's the one yeah. who did the illustrations and they are, they're kind of eerie, but sort of great. Yeah. Like I, I am a fan of a good, ufo illustration uh like I've, I've talked on this podcast about diving into uh issues of uh canadian ufo report which is like become one of my oh. favorite ufo journals because there were two artists whose work was featured pretty heavily in them uh one was a guy named brian james and the other guy's uh, uh hal crawford and like talk about full page illustrations in a lot of them like some of the most uh like infamous cases kind of like the valen soul affair i think it was uh brian james did like 
one of the most infamous illustrations of it, which is like, you know, uh, these aliens shooting at Maurice Moss and their craft sitting on the ground. It's, it's pretty iconic at this point. Uh, but like, you really can't go wrong with a good illustration. I, I, I love it. I love <laughs> well, it. Well, it's great because it, it, it's, it's like a, it's like um, a, a police sketch. Yeah. You know, describe what you saw and I'll try to draw it. Yeah. And then, and then you look at it and you're like, okay, so this is basically a mugshot of an alien. Absolutely. That's going to bring us to Herbert Shermer. And with, with Herbert Shermer, uh, his story is, you know, it's kind of legendary in, in a sense uh, in the in UFO lore. It's kind of contacty slash abductee-ish. It kind of it kind of blends the lines a little bit. Um, but um, is is he in the book? Is Shermer in the book? No. No. Okay. Yeah, like no. Uh, he should be. He should be sort of right here between Reinhold Schmidt and Richard Shaver. Oh God! Good old Richard <laughs> Shaver and this Daros. Um, oh, there's Joe Simonton. Yeah. Hey, Joe Simonton is is a contactee. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you can't go wrong. So, the story of Herbert Shermer. So the early morning hours of December 3rd, 1967, were pretty routine for Herbert Shermer. Um, and that was until he looked, take a look at the local fauna in the area and saw that they were going a little nuts. Uh, there were dogs that were kind of just like barking like mad. And there was a bull in a corral that was like kicking at its gate pretty damn hard. So he stopped briefly uh, to go take a look and make sure that the gate would hold. Shermer had been uh, with the force for about seven months by the time that he had his encounter. He was a Vietnam veteran. He enlisted in the Navy at the age of 17, though. He described himself as a conscientious objector to the war, uh, believing that it was immoral. So he's an, int- he's an interesting guy in that. Uh, and he was... Um, uh, he claims that he was born in Missouri, but I've also seen like uh, with his obituary, it says he was born in Mississippi. But, uh, you know, it's it's kind of um, th- that's like one interesting, ambiguous thing. But his dad was in the Air Force, so he moved around a lot. So went to school in Japan, Germany, France, uh, Hawaii. And when his service was up, uh, he moved back to Missouri for a few months uh, before he uh, moved with his parents in Nebraska. And he kind of struggled a little bit with like um, clerk jobs and, and stuff like that. And he ultimately decided to become a police officer. So he talked it over with his dad and he suggested, hey, go go become a Nebraska state trooper. So he goes to ashland nebraska and he fills out the forms and the way that he says it, he's like five minutes after walking into the station i was an ashland police officer they just hired me right on the spot which is great which is fantastic um so december 3rd 1967 it's about 2 20 a.m 
He checks on a pair of gas stations outside of town uh, just to make sure that they were secure. And after radioing in to dispatch, he continues on. And about 10 minutes later, he's approaching the intersection of Highway 6 and 63, which is now Highway 6 and County Road 4, if uh, you want to look at it on a map. And the first thing he noticed was a this kind of row of flashing red lights. And he assumed that it was from maybe like a truck or something that had broken down. So he pulls up a little closer and he aims his spotlight at it. And this light illuminates a saucer-shaped object uh, about 26 feet wide um, and uh, about um, like 10 to 15 feet high or so. It's uh, hovering a, a little bit above the ground. And what there what year was this again? 1967. 67, got it. Yep. So he, he also sees that there's like, kind of landing gear jutting out of the bottom. And uh, to quote uh, Shermer from a presentation that he gave, uh, it seemed like they were uh, red flashing lights coming out of a porthole, which sort of circled the craft. It had like a catwalk going around the center of it. It was shaped like a football, very metallic, like a very shiny bumper. If you polished a bumper on a car, had sort of a red, reddish orange glow coming from beneath it. So, uh, what's great about the presentation that he gave is like he kind of he he struggles to kind of describe it. And like this is, I think the presentation is from the night early nineteen seventies. So, Shermer watched as the object lifted into the air, and he feels a little weird. A little weird about it. And he returns to the station. Only it's 3 a.m. now. He doesn't really note the time difference. But he makes an entry in his logbook that says, saw a flying saucer at the junction of Highways 6 and 63. Believe it or not. (laughs) So he uh, goes home and he starts to experience some odd symptoms. He has a really bad headache. He's got nausea ringing in his ears, uh, which kind of prevents him from falling asleep. And there was this kind of red welt that was like on his, the back of his left ear. Uh, And it kind of ran down a a little bit. But um, Shermer ultimately kind of, he, he undergoes two hypnosis sessions. One at the hands of Dr. R. Leo Sprinkle under the guidance of the Condon Committee, which I always I always thought that was weird because why is the Condon Committee getting involved in hypnosis? But um, they did. Uh, and he was later hypnotized by a second guy named Lori, Loring G. Williams. So what they revealed in that span of 30 minutes um, Shermer recalls that uh, a white flash that hit him in the patrol car and the sensation that it was kind of like pulling the car towards this object. And it pulls him up over uh, a bank into a field. And the experience was shocking him and and made him feel, uh, as he put it, uh, tingly. So 
At the top of this field, the object landed right in front of his car. Shermer found that he just couldn't move. He was just paralyzed in the car. And then this hatch opens. And then this light starts to spill out onto the ground. Quote, and this form came down and looked like a human being. And then this form started walking. The figure stood approximately five feet tall, was dressed in a silver gray uniform and wore a helmet with a pair of uh, antenna on both sides. Uh, They looked pretty human, except they had a flat nose, kind of a small slit-like mouth. And probably the most arresting feature of them is they had slanted cat-like eyes. So um, he also noticed that on the front of the uniform, there was this odd emblem, and it looked like a winged serpent. So kind of like, um, you know, in the medical field, they have that one emblem that has the winged serpent on it. Um, Kind of reminds a little of that. So the being carried an object uh, kind of in two hands, and it was described as a squarish oval type wand with a lens on the front of it. And the being aimed it at the car, which produced this green light that just enveloped the car um, entirely. And then what he notices and what, what's going to be familiar is that every time a light comes out of it, instead of just like disappearing, it kind of retracts back into it. So Shermer describes, quote, feeling nothing like I was just there and that and that was it. Uh, by the time another being had exited the craft and joined the the other at the car with another object that Shermer described as a kind of big pencil with a round ball on the end of it. So the being comes up to it, up to him and presses it onto his neck. And it causes him, you know, to jolt a little bit. There's a little bit of pain. And then the being stepped back and opened his car door And again, Shermer could really only sit there. He's just sitting in his car facing forward. Uh, He couldn't even turn his head toward the the beings. And he made a motion with his hand as if, you know, like beckoning him forward. And by some mysterious force, he's raised out of the car and he's standing just like right in front of that being looking down at him. And the being asked him, are you the watchman of this town? This like infamous line. And Shermer responds, yes, sir. So this is the Ghostbusters moment of if you are asked if you're a god, you say yes. This is, this is what this is right here. <laughs> so the being escorts him to the craft and they're, they're not walking, they're floating. So he escorts them to the bottom. They lift up into the craft and... Shermer describes this uh, first room, quote, and we were in a circular room and there were a lot of cylinders about four uh, and a half feet high and about two feet wide that circled uh, the whole room. And it had sort of like a cable running through it, two cables running through these. They looked like tall batteries to me, um, which is going to kind of make sense in a little bit in the in the. um in in what's going to happen on this ship. In the middle of the room is what Herbert described as a 20-foot-long cocoon that was spinning, giving off many different colors of light. 
and the cables connected to some kind of like blocks. And this is uh, uh, this he was told is how the craft operates through uh, electrical reversible magnetism. So the being the being leads him around. And every single time that he leads him around, he says the same thing. Come with me, Watchman. And he leads him. Uh, and uh, he's taken up by this kind of elevator that's just like a flat sheet of glass. And it comes down. And uh, it takes him up to the second level. Quote, I've never seen anything like it before in my life with so many different types of instrument panels and computer-type things that you just wouldn't believe it. This cone thing was right in the center of the floor. You could see half of it from on top and half of it from the bottom, but it gave off a red glow that sort of, not flashed, but kind of died down and came back uh, up again. So, like, what I'm picturing in my head whenever anybody s- describes light doing that i think of that scene from uh this island earth where they're trying to escape in the airplane and they're brought up into this hangar and there's this big like green glob a globe of lights and it just like you know kind of flares up dies down flares up dies down it kind of gives me that same kind of vibe so the being then led him to a screen on the wall and pressed buttons and flipped some switches underneath it. And a group of stars appeared on the screen and the being stated that that was where they were from. And again, like this is without any kind of like, this is the typical, Hey, this is where we're from, but we're not going to tell you where it is or what it's called or anything like that. It's just, this is where we're from. This is what it looks like. Okay, so yeah, you've kind of, you've kind of got that you know Betty Hill kind of uh, right you know star map right. thing. See, yeah. see these stars. That's where we're from. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. So he explained uh, that the beings were here to harness electricity, and Shermer watches as an antenna on the outside of the craft is aimed at this like set of power lines and this multicolored bolt of energy shoots out and into these power lines. And for about three minutes, it starts absorbing this electricity. And then ultimately like that wand, it returns back to the ship. So there are times where Shermer describes like he's, receiving a lot of information in his head but they're in words that he can't understand as if the being is trying to telepathically communicate with him but every bit of the communication that he has it seems as if uh, it's the way that they frame it the being is talking to him like directly so after he does this uh a couple times the being kind of like touches him on the shoulder in a reassuring gesture and Shermer does the same. So the, the being escorts him to the glass sheet again, and they go up to a third floor, which uh, he called the observation deck. Uh, The being led him to this observation area, which was kind of furnished with two chairs that uh, reminded him of the kind of chairs that you see in a dentist's office. Uh, 
and from a big screen they could see another being kind of walking back and forth uh by his patrol car so Shermer's kind of awed by this moment he he uh he utters the phrase wow and the being started to speak words which he couldn't understand at first and then like this being says like one of the most profound things that i think a, a being has ever said to any like abductee he turns to him and he says watchman one day you yourself will see the universe as i have and then he grabs his shoulder again in a reassuring gesture and he just surges him forward the being stopped him again and he felt like he was kind of receiving another one of those downloads but yet he still really couldn't understand it so from this point the being escorts him back outside uh, prompting the other one to enter the ship that was pacing outside. And he was escorted back to his car where again, he could just kind of feel this download of information coming that still wasn't like making any sense to him. So the being then turned, looked down at his hand again and, you know, walked back to the ship where he floated inside. The catwalk of lights started to spin again, flashing on and off and a reddish-orange glow erupted from the bottom. The craft ascended to about 100 feet, and then it just shot away into the, into the sky. And after the craft departed, Shermer started to just, like, kind of come back to himself. And he just felt scared, like a totally normal reaction to, to something like that. Uh, but he also kind of just, like, felt like himself. You know, before that... He, he was just he just felt off so when he was on board he described feeling um the way that he put it was like he felt nothing but having returned uh he was like he sweating heavily he was nauseous and he just drove back to the station he kind of power walked into the place because he was just so scared he grabbed some water smoked a cigarette and he just kind of wondered what the hell happened well, I looked at my report log and I remembered through all the training and everything I went through that regardless of the nature of what it was, put it in your report book because you just might need it. So I looked at my report book and I got my pen out and I wrote at 2.30 a.m. December 3rd, 1967, I saw a UFO at Junction 6 and 63, believe it or not. Another patrolman named Paul comes in. Uh, a little while later and Herbert tells him his story Paul tells him pretty much not to say a thing he he says something to the effect of like um I've seen a UFO and, and he starts to make up a story and, he, and you can kind of get the idea that he's doing it to kind of reassure him that you know like don't worry about it you know it's 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 no big deal and he uh, he sends him home. Paul sends Herbert home. He was going to wait for the police chief and all that, but um, he goes home. And before long, I think he's home for like maybe an hour or two. The police chief calls him and asks him, "What the heck is all this UFO business?" And by that time, the press gets wind of this, and they all pretty much show up at Herbert's house and. It wasn't long before the ridicule kind of followed him too. Um, 
he was kind of he described kind of being like accosted on the streets and like uh people would just come up to him and say uh you know oh i seen it i seen a ufo too there herbert and, and stuff like that and kind of like you know joking tones and then there were people that would call his home uh his, his home phone and they'd chide him saying that they were an alien um but two days after the incident the uh police chief and a couple of officers go out there to uh detect if there's any radiation and there was it was above um you know, the average but soon after the condon committee sends john aarons and roy craig down to investigate the case and you know Shermer himself to see what kind of person he was and it was through their investigation that they realized that, that there was 30 minutes of missing time that they couldn't figure out so um, the Conic Committee recommended hypnosis, which again was administered by Leo Sprinkle at the time. The night that he left, the folks of Ashland, Nebraska, hung a dummy in the Ashland Cemetery. They hung it up by its neck and from a tree, and they basically put a big star on it and shot it with bullets. And they painted the holes red, and they put his name on it. And threw a, like a cowboy hat on it for good measure, uh, you know, to kind of scare him. But the the way that he talks about it, he's like, I thought it was pretty funny. You know, I, I got a kind of a kick out of it. So he's, you know, trying to put a positive spin on it. Um, According to Shermer, when he was in Boulder, there was a group of people that allegedly blew up his car using dynamite. And this is something that Herbert has said himself, like in interviews, uh, in, in the presentation, he said, you know, they blew up my car. I talked to Steve Berg, um, past guest, uh, you know, all around good dude. He's, he's, he's like the go-to guy for um, stuff on, you know, UFOs in Nebraska, anything weird in, in Nebraska. He's your guy because he's from Nebraska. So... I asked him and he said he talked to Herb's brothers at a UFO con like a couple of years ago. And he claimed that didn't happen, but I don't know why, you know, Herbert Shermer would make that up if it, you know, if it did or if it didn't. And I kind of want to see if I can find any kind of newspapers that have that in it. But, um, you know, it's kind of a disputed thing, but, um, regardless, it, it just kind of, became too much for her. He quit the police force because he felt like the press coverage was just kind of interfering with his life. Um, according to Steve, he later became pretty religious and uh, he died in 2017 in, um, I believe it's Georgia. But um, hmm. like, it's a, it's a profound kind of experience like story it's a really profound story of a guy who like and if you listen to him give his presentation he's a very down-to-earth kind of person he's not embellishing when he talks he is just stating things for the for the fact he's like you know this is what 
Um, I learned under hypnosis, uh, you know, and, and he straight states it matter of factly. So, um, so he had, those, he had conscious, he had conscious recall, but then also did hip, hypnosis. He had some conscious recall up to a, a, a certain extent. So like the UFO okay. incident totally had conscious recall of it. Like what right, happened right, right, right. after that is, is, is what came forward. But like what I find just like so compelling about his case is like how profound it is and how like in, in, in the wake of it all, a guy who in, endured like this in, intense kind of scrutiny, like, has this really profound experience that it does seemingly affect him uh, and it influences his life. Like he wasn't a religious person before kind of just, um, you know, like, like it's the textbook example of how an encounter like that can affect you and, and what you turn to after that. But uh yeah, that's uh, that's Harris, uh, that's uh, Herbert Shermer, and like that's just one of my favorite stories. Because like, man, I I want to go on a UFO and I want an alien to tell me something profound while while grabbing my shoulders. I just want it to happen now. <laughs> and refer to you as Watchman. Yes, yeah. Please, please refer to me as Watchman. I I I, I want it to happen so badly. So. Um, so did you um when you when you talk about listening to him is that on YouTube or where did you get yeah. uh did you actually hear an audio clip? Yeah. There is um one of my favorite things uh is that a guy named Michael Jasorka created a comic book based on his presentation. It's called December 3rd, 1967 and um I actually have a copy of it. it it's um he basically kind of created a comic book out of this presentation. So, um, it, it, it's, it's a beautiful comic book. Um, it's, um, he sells it on eBay. I actually got like a copy a couple of years ago, but when you buy like a physical copy, it comes with the CD of the presentation, but there is, uh, a, um, a YouTube, uh, link to a presentation that I can send you. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll text it to you uh, after we're done. But uh, we're pretty much there. We're we're at the end. The this is this is this episode. And like, uh, um, you know, one of the things that I I said when we recorded part one is that I, there are certain cases that need to be highlighted uh, along the way. And like these were one on um, on next week's episode. I'm having Professor Wham back on to talk about Harrison Bailey, which we kind of talked a little bit about. Like, I think we mentioned him when we did the uh, Tahunga Canyon one because his name kept popping up in that book because it was uh, investigated by Ann Druffel, this case. So um, right. he is, yeah. So uh, in his case has uh, racial overtones to it because he's uh, he's a black man and like there's a mob that confronts him about oh, his UFO experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 So th that'll be, that'll be the next episode. Uh, Professor Wham All actually right. wrote her dissertation on it. So like, uh, which is even cooler. <laughs> oh my God. All right. All right. Well, um, 
Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know, Rob, have we done it? Have we proven that there were abductees before the before the uh the 60s, before the uh Betty and Barney Hill, before all of that? I think so. I I, I definitely think so. I, I think, think- especially in in the previous episode i think there yep. were cases there that were so obviously they had the hallmarks yep. of the later cases but were reported early on yep. so yeah now now i just want to see how far back we can go right that's that's the tough thing it's like what else can we find there that indicates that uh, these folks came forward with their abduction accounts before you know a certain a certain year and like you know, my cutoff period right now is um, like 1980. That's when I kind of accept that um, the mainstream abduction narrative isn't there yet. It's you're going to yeah. start to see it uh, when Missing Time is published. It's a little bit there. Um, you could see in, in that one illustration in that book by Ted Seth Jacobs of Steve Kilburn's Encounter. That's kind of your prototypical gray. The eyes aren't as big, but like, you know, short, like uh, lanky kind of skinny figures with big heads and stuff like that. But, um, you know, the main premise is, is that um, the the influence on alien abductions and what they become with like rays and stuff like that. Your year in which that takes place is 1987. So before that, what you find uh, and and especially with and not necessarily just uh alien abductions but alien encounters are so varied and then after 1987 you kind of have this like small group of figures that are responsible for abductions and in in close encounters which include greys lizard type beings you're kind of nordics i hate using that term but um the nordics well well this albert coe's buddy sounds like a nordic yeah definitely he definitely does but uh yeah there's there's so much coming down the pike with the series and there's like so many um individuals as well as kind of um books that need to be covered in their own so uh i i we're ambitious here it's it's Oh boy, this just yeah. sounds like more work on my plate. I just just know there's going to be a text message again. Hey Rich, uh, here's the book. Want- Get ready. <laughs> hey Rich, you uh, you good for part five, six, seven? You know we gotta, oh, dude. We gotta God. we gotta like dissect Whitley Strieber. <laughs> oh man! All right, all right. Why don't you let's track him down? Let's have him on. Yeah. Yes, uh, we will have to do that. Um, but uh rich thank you again for coming on for this uh the beginnings of this series here i i appreciate it dude we're close <laughs> we're so <Yeah>. close <laughs> you know, we we really are we uh we really are rich what what do you got going on these days like uh, i know you just kind of wrapped on titans but like what else is going on here yeah, well, uh, I don't know. I mean, we're 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 kind of waiting to see uh, see what happens with season four. Uh, uh, we, we've been. I was I was told it was our last season. Now now it looks like HBO Max might be waffling. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. What, what we'll see. Well, you never what know. What he's saying, what he's saying, folks, is that put the pressure on HBO. 
do it. Just go yeah. and say you want it back for a fifth season. That's how that's well, okay. how you make it happen. <laughs> Rob, when does this episode drop? Do we know when uh when the the listening public will hear this? Yeah, it's uh no like the second Monday in November. Oh dang. Okay, well that's weeks. right around our premiere because we premiere on um on th- uh Thursday Thursday November 3rd is our okay. is our premiere. So that's season 4 and we premiere with two episodes. Um I wrote the first one, my buddy Brian Hill wrote the second one. And then every Thursday after that another episode rolls out until we get to episode six, and then we take a break. There's a mid-season climax, uh-huh. and then we take a break, uh, and then uh, I don't know how long before they air this the, the the final six episodes of season four. And then by then, by the time they do that, we we should know if if there will be any more episodes after that. So we'll find out. Yes, we anyway, will find out. Yeah, Titans. HBO Max seasons one, two, and three are available uh, right now. Go watch them. And uh, season four premieres November 3rd. Absolutely. Yes. Go check it out. Put that pressure on HBO Max. He needs those residuals, folks. He needs them. If I'm going to buy more UFO books, yes. Come on. What else am I going to spend it on? You know, I'm not doing drugs. I might as well just buy UFO books. Right, right. Uh, you know, got to make it happen, folks. This is like he's trying to live the dream, and uh, those yeah. residuals help every a, single time. <laughs> a high rolling uh, Hollywood uh, geek, you know. Yep. If I if I'm not spending all my money, you know, in Vegas or uh, on cocaine, it's nothing but you know first editions by Albert <laughs> Co. First editions by Albert Coe. And, you know, uh, if you got any leads on any George Van Tassel, he's he's more than happy to hear it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Shake those tassels, baby. I need some George Van. You need some George Van. Uh, as for us at the Our Strange Guys podcast, uh, you can uh, find us on most podcasting apps. And while I, you know, revel in the... Uh, UFO books. Really, what I'm out, I'm looking for are, are good ratings, folks. Just give me five stars. I, I deserve it. I really do. Like you know, I, I put a lot of work into this stuff, and I drag Rich into this because you want Rich Haddam on this podcast. You you talk about it all the time, uh, and show him the love on, on Twitter. He needs it. He thrives on it, and uh, you know, it's um, it, it just makes my day. Give me, give me a five star rating, please. Just do it. Just do it. Uh, Just do it, guys. It but costs you nothing. It costs, costs you nothing. nothing. Costs you nothing. Uh, OurStrangeGuys.com is where you can find most links to most things, and that resource page that I will not stop talking about ever. Uh, it's it's a fantastic page, it really is, because it's 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 literally everything that I use uh, for this podcast. I use I actually found a new set of resources that I ended up using for the part one of this episode uh, of this series. Uh, uh, the um, that one story of um, uh, I forget that one woman's name who had that weird missing time event while she was driving in New Mexico. I found that in a new resource that I didn't know about at the time. And I literally discovered it that morning. So yeah, the digital resources page, go check it out. 
you can find Check all sorts of antiquated out. journal links and everything. It's just, it's so great. Uh, I, I keep forgetting that I have a P.O. Box. So if you want to send me things, it's P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. Send him your personal UFO stories. Send him gifts. Just send him money. Send, Who needs Patreon? <laughs> yeah. Just yeah, send it directly seriously. to his P.O. box. Gift just, certificates, just whatever. Whatever you got. Just do it. Send it to me like you are a grandparent sending me $25 uh, in, a, in a card. Just do it. Just, it you'll you'll yeah. feel good about yourself for it. So um, also, yeah. if you have his, his, his yeah. birthday is right around the corner next April. May it's next May, but you know, like that's or next like, May. I'm sorry, next May. Yeah, that's that's next week practically. So yeah, um, you know, if there are any, uh, you know, giving aunties and and grandparents out there, send your checks on over. <laughs> but uh, uh, also, if you haven't checked out Welcome UFO People, the web comic that I'm doing with my buddy Todd Purse, go check it out. We have an Instagram page. We have a, a Twitter page at uh, welcome UFO peeps on Twitter and Yelp welcome UFO people on Instagram. Uh, we post one a month right now because we are just incredibly busy people. And to be honest, Todd does a lot of the hard work. I just kind of boil things down into a script that I barely know how to create. So uh, if you like web comics and web comics featuring obscure ufo cases go check it out they're 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 pretty cool um we are a proud member of the duvid media family uh and uh spencer worth davis is our guy like the the man behind the curtain he's the one he, he helps out so much on this podcast so um uh, i you know there's they they've helped out a lot and we're we're at a different better place now because of them uh Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song UFO. Um, go go check out his stuff. It, it, it's really good. It's really good. Like the album that the song UFO comes from is called Not an Album. You know, it's cheeky. It's funny. Go check it out. You can find them on Bandcamp, uh, Spotify, Apple Music, all that good stuff. Um, Megan Lagerberg did our logo, and the great Desdemona is behind a lot of our T-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up. Because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or at the junction of 6 and 63 outside of Ashland, Nebraska. In gray, we trust. Yeah.